Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro, who has been a pulpit rabbi for more than 30 years. He is the author of several books, the last of which is called The Empty Wagon, Zionism's Journey from Identity Crisis to Identity Theft, published in 2020. This is a 1,393-page treatise on the differences between Zionism and Judaism. Rabbi Shapiro is the host of the Committing High Treason podcast, which discusses mostly issues surrounding the ideology of Zionism and the state of Israel. I welcome Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro to Savage Minds. I wanted to welcome you to the show, and I am so excited to talk to you because of your work on a subject that since 7 October especially, Many people on social media seem to misunderstand entirely the differences between Zionism and Judaism. And dare I say, many people don't have a clue about what either is. And so I was very excited to learn about your work and to read your book, The Empty Wagon, Zionism's Journey from Identity Crisis to Identity Theft, because this is an important topic in as much as the events ongoing within Israel, Gaza, West Bank today, but also it harkens back to the 19th century. And I've tried to have interactions the last two months with people on social media only to be called an anti-Semite because I'm not a Zionist. But I would very much love for you to discuss the birth of Zionism and its effect within the European consciousness, but also that of the secular Jew and the religious Jew, if possible. Sure, gladly. Um, thank you for having me. The story starts a few centuries ago. To make things safe, let's start 300 years ago, uh, 400 years ago. At that point in time, everybody understood, all Jews understood and non-Jews, that being Jewish is a religion. Well, I shouldn't say non-Jews understood that. Uh, see, the Jewish people looked at themselves as a people that were created when God gave the Torah to Moses. According to the Bible, and this is the Orthodox Jewish belief, God gave the Torah to Moses and the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. And that's pretty much the story of our religion and everything else's commentary. According to the Torah, uh, entire humanity is obligated to fulfill certain uh, decrees or commandments of God. The most of the world, the non-Jewish world, is, ob is obligated to fulfill seven of them. These seven commandments are uh, basic values, I guess you could say. Um, don't worship idols. Uh, create a system of law. It doesn't have to be Jewish law. Any system of civil law. Uh, don't kill, don't steal. Um, one of them is don't rip uh, limbs off live animals and eat them. That's one of the seven. Uh, it's basic. They call them Noahide laws. Then there are a group of people who our tradition tells us, our religion tells us, uh, not only were many of them there at Mount Sinai after ex after exiting from Egypt, that's the story of the Exodus in the book of Exodus in the Bible, but also the souls of many future people were at that mountain. And 
God asked them, do you want to accept this religion? And the religion required the people who accept it to fulfill 613 commandments, not just seven, 613, with many thousands of sub-commandments, uh, sub-categories. And there are many people who were there in body and soul who said yes. There were people who were of who were not there at Mount Sinai, who also wanted to accept this because God offered it to anybody. Our tradition, our religion tells us that those people eventually will convert to Judaism. And nobody is obligated to convert to Judaism. According to Judaism, anybody in the world can serve God as a Gentile. And they are obligated to fulfill the seven commandments. And if they do, so they get rewarded in the afterlife. And the Jews, uh, well, the definition of a Jew is somebody who's commanded to fulfill the 613. That's all a Jew is. Whenever the word Jew appears in Jewish literature, you can replace that word with brackets. And in those brackets, write people who are commanded to fulfill 613 mitzvahs. That's all it means. When you ask who is a Jew, that's the same as asking who's obligated to fulfill the commandments. That's all it means. Could you define a mitzvah? Many of our listeners will not know what a mitzvah is. A mitzvah is simply a commandment. Um, the word tzivoy, which is the root of the word mitzvah, or tzaveh, to command, is all it means. A mitzvah is the noun. It is a commandment. The mitzvah is a commander, that's God. And a mitzvah is the one who is commanded. But the root is tzadivavhe, uh, that means commandment. And that's all a mitzvah is. Now, mitzvah is used colloquially to describe... Um, a good deed. A good deed, which, um, which is in line with the Torah values. It doesn't have to be one of the 613. As I mentioned, there are so many thousands of sub-commandments and customs, and it's a very a complex and profound religion. But at its core, it's very simple. It involves three things. God, that's one, gave the Torah, that's the law, the mitzvahs, that's what it means, uh, three to the Jews, that's it, very simple. Everything else is commentary. God, it's important to remember these three things because I'm going to bring them up with, with regard to Zionism. God gave the Torah to the Jews. Torah, by the way, means teaching, it means law. And the Arabic word for Torah is Sharia. Now, I know the word Sharia conjures in many Westerners' minds um, images of uh, people being forced to uh, fulfill Quranic law or something like that. But the word Sharia literally in its translated form simply means religious law. That's all it is. Every religion's have it. And the reason I say that it means Sharia is because we had a, a sage about a thousand years ago who lived in Egypt. His name was Rabbi Sadia. And Rabbi Sadia wrote a very classic book called Amunos Vedeos, which means beliefs and opinions. And in there he says something that he says a rule that is has been accepted by the Jews. It, can, it succinctly describes, actually, uh, the Jewish religion and what the Jewish people are. It says, 
Aren't people are only a people because of the Torah, because of the law. Now, he originally wrote his book in Arabic. And the word that he used for Torah is Sharia. All Sharia means in the classic sense is religious law. That's all it is. And how people use it, that's a different story. This was written about a thousand years ago in Arabic. Our Sharia means our religious law. That's it. Um, every religion can have their own religious law. Uh, our religious law is called Torah in Hebrew, and that's the word we use. I only found out about this Sharia because somebody who knows Arabic saw the book in the original Arabic, and he showed it to me. In any case, that's all being a Jew is. That's all it ever was. Now, um, again, not any, nobody is obligated to fulfill the commandments, the 613. Not any, nobody is obligated to be a Jew. God is not going to ask you um, when he greets you in the afterlife, why weren't you Jewish? He's not going to ask you. God didn't command people to become Jews. We do accept converts. We don't particularly encourage them if they want to, gladly. Uh, the, our previous president's daughter, Ivanka Trump, was a convert to Judaism. King David's great-great-great-grandmother, Ruth, was a convert to Judaism. Some of our greatest uh, uh, people were converts to Judaism. The convert is welcomed if that's what he wants. But it's uh, nobody's under any obligation at all to be Jewish. You could serve God as a Gentile. Now, just as, so why would anybody want to be Jewish? Well, the answer is, like anywhere else, the more responsibilities you have and commandments, a mitzvah is a responsibility, um, the more reward you get. It's very simple. In any business, the when you get promoted, that means you get more responsibilities, I hope. Otherwise, you're, you're the boss's son-in-law, and that's the only reason you were promoted. But if you're promoted, you get more responsibilities. And with more responsibilities comes more compensation. It's that simple. And everybody in the world has... Uh, choice whether to be Jewish or not. And nobody's, not only no one's forcing anybody to be Jewish, we're not even encouraging anybody to be Jewish. We're not particularly, uh, again, we're, we're not, um, ref, we don't refuse converts. They can, gladly. Somebody wants to, go ahead. But there is no obligation on anybody to be a Jew. They can be a Gentile and serve God that way. So that's all a Jew ever was. Now, there were various different interpretations as to what the religion says there were in the back in the olden days a few thousand years ago there was well even in biblical times they had the rebellion of korach against moses um there was yeruvim the son of Nevot, in the days of the prophets and in more recent times there were about a couple thousand years ago in the days of the second temple there were the tzedukim who believed in their interpretation of the Torah. Um, but everybody agreed that uh, Judaism is a religion given by God on Mount Sinai. There were differences between people, different sects, break-off sects, you could call them, that interpreted it differently. Christianity is a break-off sect of Judaism. Jesus was an Orthodox Jew. All over the New Testament, he you can see him doing mitzvahs, fulfilling commandments. He washed before he ate bread. The Last Supper was a Passover Seder. Um, now, he 
created a new religion, and that was a break-off sect from Judaism. Um, the New Testament, it's new, right? It was an addition, a later innovation. Now, according to Christianity, it was the fulfillment of Judaism or the culmination of Judaism. Jews reject that. We say that Christianity is not a fulfillment of Judaism. It's a break-off uh, of Judaism, and it's not the what God wants us to do not the religion God wants us to fulfill. That's the way it worked. And with some, perhaps, quirky exceptions, uh, Benedict Spinoza may be an example, depends who you ask. Um, everybody agreed that this is what Jews were. Now, this was going on for centuries, even uh, thousands of years. Of course, you understand that the enemies of the Jews, uh, the people, let's take the pagans, who they didn't believe that God gave Moses and the Jews any Torah on Mount Sinai. Now they have to have a different definition of Jew. Well, who are these Jews? What are these Jews? Uh, they're not people who were created on Mount Sinai. Uh, they're not people who are commanded to fulfill 613 mitzvahs. They made up their religion like everybody else makes up their religion. Okay, fine, no problem. So who are they? Well, they're really no different than anybody else, just people that created a religion um but as time went by so the jews had a kingdom uh, two kingdoms actually in biblical times i'm talking in the days of the prophets there was king david king solomon king saul uh, there was a split in the jewish kingdoms there were two kingdoms there was yehuda judah and yisrael uh, israel we can call it and they took on the appearance. This is after the days of Moses. M Moses never went into the Holy Land. This is after Joshua conquered it in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. They took on um, behaviors that could lead somebody to believe that they are a kingdom. A King David had a kingdom and there were subjects that he had. Um, the truth is that King David was a king because the Torah commanded him, commanded the Jews to create, to make a king. Um, it's one of the commandments. Now, it has to be under the right circumstances, which is why when the Jews wanted a king, uh, the prophet Samuel told them that they're misbehaving. But that's, uh, we don't need to get into the religious theology there. Suffice it to say that the Jews self-identified as a religion, but it was a religion that had a kingdom back in the day. Um, now, the Jewish religion is, as I said, complex and it's profound. And it has different, different manifestations. Uh, it, it, it requires different things of the Jewish people during different days of the year. It requires, you know, there's a holier days, there's a Sabbath, there's a Yom Kippur. Then there's different time periods. When there is a temple, there's a certain, certain commandments are in effect. When there's no temple, other commandments are, uh, some those commandments, many of them are not in effect. Instead, the mission of the Jews is to go all around the world uh, spreading uh, the Torah, sanctifying the world. I, when I say spreading the Torah, I don't mean to the people. I mean spreading the Torah physically, fulfilling it all around the world, um, thereby sanctifying the world, and that's that's Judaism.
after the temple was destroyed approximately 2,000 years ago, it was in the year 70, um, the Jews, Judaism took on a different mission. And not because Judaism changed, but because Judaism, as I said, it works kind of like a computer program. If this, then that. Otherwise, something else. You know what I mean? So if there's no temple, and uh, now you are in exile, and uh, now we have a certain job, and our job is just to be uh, among the nations, the America, Italy, France, England, wherever, um, and to fulfill the Torah. That's all we want. We are, our job is, as it says in the Bible, Mamlachas Kaihanim Vagai Kodosh, in English that means our job is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy people. Think, by way of analogy, Shaolin monks in a temple. They stick to themselves, they study whatever they do a whole day. Now, we don't do martial arts, right? But just the segregationist type thing. All we want, all we ever wanted was to be left alone, study our law, fulfill our commandments, serve the religion, and, and that's it. About a thousand years ago in Spain, uh, the Jews requested uh, to be requested to be in ghettos. Now, ghettos, like Sharia, has a very negative connotation because the ghetto evolved into something, kind of a prison, an open-air prison for Jews. But that's not how it began. The, as there was a great historian, a Salo Baron, excuse me, Salo Baron, who had a good line. He said the locks on the inside of the ghetto uh, doors were there before the locks on the outside, meaning the reason why the ghetto was created, it was created by the Jews to keep the outside influences out of the ghetto. You know, it's like studying for a test. Our Jew, lives of the Jews are like the life of somebody studying for a test. You lock the doors, you're busy studying, you don't answer the phone, you know, temporarily the finals are coming, leave me alone for X amount of weeks, I'm busy. That's the, that's the life of the Jews. We are loyal, and not only loyal as citizens, as humans, because it's a morally correct thing to do, but it's also an obligation by our religion to be loyal to our countries. Absolutely. Um, nationally, we are the nationalities of our countries. There are Italian Jews. There always were Italian Jews. There were some great, great Jews, uh, great rabbis from Italy. There were Spanish Jews. Uh, Yemenite Jews, Moroccan Jews, Iraqi Jews, Iranian Jews, French, German, Russian Jews, and all over the place. Now, unfortunately, there were a lot of persecutions. Uh, the Jews in Europe, for many years, were the only religion there aside from the Christians. There were no Muslims in Europe. I'm not counting, you know, Spain in the olden days, the Arabic Spain. But I'm talking about the Catholics, um, Christians, and Jews. Those are the only two religions. And there was this idea that the Jews are Christ killers and Messiah killers, and there were persecutions and inquisitions, forced conversions, and, and that led to a lot of, well, anti-Semitism. Most Jews said, we don't care. We're not going to give up our religion. We'd rather die. But later on, 
in let's say the early 1700s uh, when the enlightenment and emancipation was already going strong uh, there were jews that said you know what we now have an opportunity to get out of the ghetto um as I said, the ghetto evolved into an open-air prison because they, whereas they, they locked the Jews in. First, the Jews locked the society out, and then they locked the Jews in. But that was a persecution. It wasn't a social. It wasn't a way of um, keeping away the Jewish distractions. The way the Jews wanted to keep away distractions, studying for the test that they're going to have to take when they meet God in the afterlife. That was persecution. And when the emancipation and the enlightenment came, there were Jews who said, you know what? We don't need this anymore. Let's go, let's go do things that other people do. The Jews, they were literate. Um, compulsory education in Europe started in France in the 1800s. The Jews had it for 2,000 years. There was an edict by one of the high priests uh, about 2,000 years ago that any town that does not have a school for the children must be dismantled. Period. Every if a school does, if a town does not have a school, you dismantle the town. There's no such thing as a, school, a town without an education for the kids. We and we were all, they were literate, um, but they were because we have a mission in life uh, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy people, to be busy serving our religion, serving our God, and studying our religion, uh, connecting to a God in the way that He commanded us through the six hundred thirteen commandments. We weren't interested in sports, architecture, art. And there were Jews who wrote poetry, sure, philosophy. There was Jewish philosophy and poetry. But all the philosophy and poetry, if it was Jewish, had to do with our religion. There was no fiction literature. Jews didn't have fiction literature. There was no purpose to it. Um, we were people dedicated to the religion. Once the emancipation came, once the enlightenment came, there were Jews that said, you know what, let's be secular. Uh, I'm a smart guy. I want to I wanna be an artist. I want to be an architecture. I want to go to college and become a doctor and a lawyer. Now, there were Jewish doctors, too. Uh, Maimonides was uh, famous. He was the doctor for Suleiman. But uh, that was in the, mid, uh, in the, mid, in the uh, 1200s, 1300s, where doctors didn't go to medical school the way we didn't have to go to university. Once there were universities in, in Europe, Jews were not allowed to go there. So they couldn't become doctors. So there were um, Jews that said, we want to be like everybody else. And they tried. The problem is it didn't work. They figured that if they would be like everybody else, so there's no reason people would persecute them. The reason why people, would, people persecuted Jews was because Jews were different. Turns out these people were persecuted anyway in Russia or Ukraine, actually, in 1881, there started a tremendous succession of pogroms. And the secular, many, many Jews were killed. Uh, it's a historical question regarding how much the government was involved in it, or was it just the, the rabble? Nonetheless, terrible pogroms and secular Jews were targeted as well which means that the assimilation idea didn't work. And in France, then you had the Dreyfus Affair. We're not talking about religious Jews being persecuted. 
um, as Jews, we're talking about secular Jews, anti-Semitism against secular Jews. But now the question is, why? Why is this happening? And it was a an identity crisis for these secular Jews. They didn't want to be Jews because they looked at Jews as retrograde. They chose, and everybody has a free choice, they chose a secular lifestyle. Uh, they chose a Gentile lifestyle. But the Gentiles won't let them be Gentiles. The Russians wouldn't let them be regular Russians. And they didn't want to be Jews, so what are they? That was the, that was the dilemma that they faced. There are many different secular Jews that came up with various different solutions to this identity crisis. Uh, again, their dilemma was they didn't want to be Jews. They didn't like the way the Jews were. They, they wanted to be involved in art and poetry. They even looked at the Jews as disgusting. Uh, these are people who aren't interested in being part of history. These are people who aren't interested in um, creating art. They're not interested in sports. They're not interested in war. That was a particularly uh, sensitive topic to the secular Jews. The reg Jews, by our religion, are uh, pacifists. We don't like wars. And we have a mandate by our religion to rather run than fight. At least in exile, unless our religion is attacked. When our religion is attacked, then we fight back. But that's not fighting back for ourselves. We're fighting for God. Only when our religion is attacked. If somebody tries to force us to give up our religion, then we will resist. That was, we just, today is the last day of Hanukkah. And this that's what the rebellion of on Hanukkah was about, and that's what we celebrate. The Jews resisted. They expected to die. They expected to give their life rather than give up their religion. But a miracle happened, and they won the war. Even in biblical times, when there are stories, and your listeners may be, may be, <laughs> may be developing a question now, um, well, what do you mean, Shapiro, they're saying? In the Bible, every other page is starting from the book of if all over the Bible, there are wars all over the place. Well, we have our interpretation of the Bible, and that's what makes Judaism Judaism. And our interpretation of the Bible is that, yes, there were wars, but those people were not warriors. There's a story, there's an old story of the Enlightenment people, the secular Jews. They always used to make fun and mock the religious Jews. And there was one... Uh, Play that they did. They put on a play mocking us, kind of like a Saturday Saturday Night Live kind of thing. And the skit was where the Bible describes when the Jews must go to war, um, and that's when when God commands them. So they they recruit people. So there's the man that's recruiting everybody, and he asks who wants to join the army, and thousands of people volunteer and then comes the conditions only religious and holy people are allowed to be in the army it doesn't matter how much muscles you have it doesn't matter that's not what wins wars according to judaism it's your holiness 
and whoever is more righteous will win the war. So if you're not righteous enough, go home. Also, and a whole bunch of people went home. Also, anybody who just recently got married, you don't belong in the army, go back home to your wife. They go home. Somebody who recently built a house, you built a house, go enjoy it, you're not allowed to fight. They go home. At the end of the thousands of volunteers, there are only two people left, two old rabbis who are actually real rabbis. One was a rabbi Soloveitchik, and another one was Rabbi Kagan, two of the holiest rabbis of that time. This is early 20th century. So they went to Rabbi Soloveitchik with a transcript or a comic strip, uh, this story goes, of this skit. And they asked him, they, they were embarrassed. They, the, or they were Orthodox Jews who were embarrassed because they were mocked. And they went to Rabbi Soloveitchik for his response. And he looks at it and he says, yes, this is correct. And this is correct. To the next panel, this is correct. This is correct. He says they got everything right, except they left out one part of the story. We won the war. <laughs> you see, according to Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, King David wasn't the way he's depicted in the movies or in the books as a kind of like, uh, I don't know, Ragnar Lothbrok with a yarmulke. No, he's more like a old saintly rabbi. Uh, and we won wars only by grace of God, always miraculously. That's Judaism. Judaism is, again, it's a religion. Our entire interpretation of the Bible, it's a religion, has to do with God, angels, splitting of the sea, miracles, religion. That's the thing. That's the most important thing to know about Judaism. God gave Moses on Mount Sinai a Torah. It's miracles. It's angels. It's supernatural. It's an afterlife. That's Judaism, right? Now, these secular Jews didn't want to be part of this. They didn't want to be Shaolin monks or something analogous to Shaolin monks. They wanted to be regular enlightenment people, but they weren't able because of anti-Semitism. There were various different answers. The one that was dominant was Zionism. Zionism said, all right, you know what? People have a bad perception of Jews. And there are various different theories as to why. Why? First, they're disgusting. The Jews really are disgusting. Who would want to be a Jew? Who would like the Jews? The, the Jews and, and the these secularist Jews, they adopted many of the anti-Semitic tropes. The Jews, the religious Jews, not us. We're secular Jews. We're like the Gentiles. Those Jews that are religious, the guys that are like Yaakov Shapiro, they are immoral. They're disgusting. They're, they're, they're ugly to look at. They're weak. They're cowards. That was a big thing, the wars thing. They're cowards. They don't like... Who doesn't want to be a warrior? You know, we Jews never... We have many holy sites all over the world, and particularly in the Holy Land. But there is no holy site, although there are many wars in the Bible. There's We don't have a site like the Alamo. I mean, in, in America, in Texas, there's a site of a famous battle, and it's a, oh, a museum now over there. There's no site, there's no site of battles that Jews had because they're not important. It was just another miracle. We don't look up to the warrior. We don't look up to the strong man. A person wants exercise. It's very important to take care of your body and be healthy. But sports has something to admire. A guy that can play soccer and can kick a ball while flipping upside down into a net, that's nice. That's nice. But that's not our aspiration. That's not holiness. It's not morality. It's not spirituality. 
again, there's nothing wrong with it. It's not a sin. It's just not our aspiration. Just fine. Outside of the walls of our community, go right ahead. Nobody has a problem with that. But that wasn't what we aspired to. They had a problem with this. They wanted to be uh, Pele. They wanted to be Babe Ruth. They wanted to be warriors. They wanted to be General Patton. They wanted to be Ragnar Lothbrok. They wanted to be Conan the Barbarian. They wanted to be these guys. They wanted to be kings. That's what they wanted. Fine, no problem. They left the community, but guess what? The Gentiles wouldn't let them. So they decided the reason is because the perception of Jews as these uh, these uh, priests, so to speak, like the Shaolin, that got to go. That's got to go. In those days, late 1700s, 1800s, that's the timeline now, nationalism was the big thing. Prior to nationalism, a person wasn't part of a nationality. He was the subject of a king. So you were, you know, King Egbert, right? Uh, you were King Egbert's subject, and you were fighting his wars, right? Uh, but nationalism meant that you are part of a nation, and there was different philosophies. It was actual philosophy nationalism. There's organic uh, nationalism, where an Englishman, for example, there's something organic and natural about being an Englishman that, by nature, um, somehow sets him aside from an Italian. This is, of course, a prelude to racism, that different nationalities are really based on different races. They're superior races, inferior races. Nationalism, there's a strain of nationalism that is a slippery slope into racism. On the other hand, there's what we call liberal nationalism, like the United States of America. America doesn't believe there's anything organic about being American. We're not even 250 years old. We're full of all sorts of different types of people. It's just kind of a corporation. It's a deal, uh, like any other corporation. We pay taxes, we get benefits, we work to help each other. If somebody in California is attacked, let's say, or Hawaii, uh, by the Japanese, the people on the East Coast will move to defend them. It's it's a deal, right? It's, it's a cooperative thing. It's like a corporation. And there are many gradations of nationalism in between. There's, there are a group of people of Jews that said, we want nationalism. Nationalism helped people a lot. It motivated people. People now weren't fighting for the king. They were proud of their nationality. They were an Englishman. I wasn't a subject of King Egbert. I was an Englishman. I was a Frenchman. I was an Italian. Um, and now they said, let's make us proud to be Jews. Let's make the Jews into a nationality. That was the idea of Zionism. Let's change the Jews. And, and here's the end goal. Once the Jews change to a nationality, two things will happen. The first thing, their personalities will change. Right now, the Jewish personality is so messed up from thousands. It's messed up. It's going to change it. They're going to aspire to win gold medals because that's what nations do. Nations don't aspire to be holy people like Shaolin monks. Nations aspire to win gold medals, win wars, have the strongest army, win Eurovision song contests. They aspire to have the best architecture and tourism. And they're, they're part of the world and part of history. After all, history, this was Hegelian philosophy and others as well, but the Zionists uh, actually invoked this. History is just the history of nations. It's not the history of people. Once we're a nation, once we're a nation, all our problems will be solved, our personal problems, and therefore people will look at us differently once we change our personality. So 
let's make the Jews into a nationality. The problem is, the Jews didn't have any national characteristics. It was a fiction from everything I've read of your work and others that this idea, what well, we know from people like Benedict Anderson, his brilliant work on the formation of nation states from Indonesia and beyond, that the nation state project was in fact, as you just said, to unify people. I, I was shocked when I moved to Italy. I didn't know anything about Italy, but Italy is a much younger country than the United States as a nation. And nationhood was a form of mass identification, unification. Yet the paradox of Zionism is that it came from, was largely organized in Europe by a man who was Jewish, but not religious, Theodor Herzl, who in 1897 authored a piece that you have included in your book called Mauschel, his article that was written and published in 1897 that appeared in, to the, in the newspaper Die Welt, which was to become the principal outlet for the Zionist movement down to 1914 and was published roughly a month after the conclusion of the first Zionist Congress. So most people, as you well know, have no knowledge of the origins of Zionism, especially the sheer fact that it has always been political, never a religious project. And Herzl was an Austro-Hungarian Jewish journalist, a political activist, and paradoxically, he's considered the father of modern political Zionism. Again, the people on Twitter, on Facebook, who have no clue about this movement seem to think that this was a very deeply religious movement when in fact it was anything but. Yes, it was an anti-religious movement. The whole purpose of Zionism was to change the personalities um, and the characters of the Jews by transforming them from a religion into a nationality. And people like Herzl, of course they weren't religious. He, any religion, Herzl preferred Christianity to Judaism, by the way. His son converted to Christianity, and you know the old Jewish joke, what's the difference between Herzl and Jesus? The difference is Jesus celebrated Hanukkah and Herzl celebrated Christmas. Herzl, they, they didn't, they really, that's what I said. The whole idea, the motive behind Zionism was because Jews were bad. They were retrograde. They were disgusting. Vladimir Jabotinsky, who started what they call revisionist Zionism, which today, that was the right wing of Zionism. Like all political movements had a right wing and a left wing. So on the right wing, let's say, was Jabotinsky. On the left wing was Ben-Gurion and others like them. But Jabotinsky founded a political party, actually, it's called the Heyrus Party, or the Heyrut, which today morphed into the Likud. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu considers this guy his mentor. Now, Jabotinsky, when Herzl died in 1904, he eulogized Herzl, and he explained what he considered the greatness of Theodor Herzl. You know what he said? He said, a Hebrew, they use the word, they call themselves Hebrews, not Zionists, because Hebrew is a national uh, uh, description as opposed to Zionist, which is a movement, right? So the, the Hebrew, meaning a Zionist, the if you want to know what a Zionist is, a real Zionist, there's nothing to compare it, him to right now. There's no analogy to say, okay, look at that. That's what a Hebrew aspires to be. Instead, look at a Jew, a Jid, he said, which is a derogatory a term for Jew, kind of like kike. And he said, look at a Jew, meaning a religious Jew, and imagine his exact diametrical opposite. 
every character trait that he has. He's weak, imagine strength. He's ugly, imagine handsomeness. He's scared, imagine courageousness. Everything that a Jew is, imagine the opposite, and that's a Zionist. And that was Theodor Herzl. That's literally what he said. A Zionist is the opposite of a Jew in terms of personality and character. And their goal was to tear out the Jewish values. And Jews taught, it's in our studies, every elementary school kid knows, who is strong? He who conquers himself. Who is honored? He who honors others. These were our values, and that's all we want. No, no, no. They wanted to be strong. They wanted Ezehu Gibor, somebody who fights. Who was Mechubit, who was honored? Somebody who has a thousand people cheering for him. Somebody who, who receives honor. This is what Zionism was. And it was completely anti-Jewish. Now, <laughs> there, there were... Now, here's where things get complicated. There were religious Jews... Most religious Jews said, we don't want at all to have anything to do with these Zionists. They're anti-Semites. Plus, they're, they have nothing to do with us. They have nothing in common with us. Remember, Judaism is a religion. If somebody rejects the religion and even creates a movement to negate the religion, they're certainly not our friends. Um, remember, we, would, we don't fight unless somebody tries to negate our religion. So certainly when we'd give our lives rather than give up our religion. So imagine how the Zionist movement was looked at by Orthodox Jews. It's a, literally a movement to destroy Judaism and transform it for all time into some political movement. Um, now, there were Orthodox Jews that said, hey, look, you know what? Anti-Semitism does exist, and they do want to find a country for us. You see, the Zionists needed to synthesize national characteristics for the Jews. We had Jews weren't a nationality. We had we're not like the Kurds that are looking for a, a a country. We had no flag. We had no common language. We had no common culture. There were Yemenite Jews, Moroccan Jews, German Jews, Russian Jews, English Jews. We have nothing in common except the commandments. Nothing else. Even the secular Jews had no way to define what a Jew is because they were Ashkenazi secular Jews. Let's say the Germans, the Polish, uh, you know, the Russians. And today, even, secular Jews consider themselves Jewish because of this kind of culture. They eat bagels and locks, and maybe they have a sense of humor, kind of Jewish jokes. And But, but that's only one narrow sliver of Jew. That's the Ashkenazi secular Jewish culture. The Yemenite Jews weren't like that and still are not like that at all. The Yemenite Jews were like regular Yemenites. They sat on uh, with turbans and, and, and earrings. Um, is sitting on carpets, which is fine, but they practice the Jewish religion. There is no valid, nobody has come up with a valid definition of, of a Jew outside of the one that I mentioned. But getting back to Zionism, so the Zionists provided the Jews with a, a, a culture. They said it was the Ashkenazi. Well, they wanted a Middle Eastern culture. Um, some of them wanted Ashkenazi culture. There was this because this whole idea was the idea of synthesizing a nationality, and now you have all of these things. What language should we speak? What culture should we have? What lands should we get? Um, what should be the definition of our nationality? There were Zionists that were fighting about this all day. Uh, there was a Zionist. A very interesting question came up. 
Yosef Chaim Brenner, he said, look, if a Zion, if an atheist can be a Jew, right? Because a Jew is just a nationality. Can a, can a Jew be a Christian if he can be an atheist? If a Jew is a nationality, every nationality, you can be a Christian or a Muslim by religion or a Buddhist or atheist or, or a Jew. So if Jew is a religion and it's in the same category as French, Italian, uh, British, then why can't you have a Jewish Christian? So there was a there were Zionists that said, sure, you can have Jewish Christians. And when we get a land one day, we don't know where what's preferable for us yet. We don't know what we're going to. Uh, which land we're going to try to take. But when we do, so the Omar Mosque will be guarded by Jews who practice Islam and the uh, Holy Sepulchre will be guarded by Jews who practice Christianity. Others said, no, we can't have Christian Jews. That doesn't make sense. Well, why doesn't it make sense if a Jew is a nationality? Today, by Israeli law, an atheist is allowed to be a Jew. He's qualified for the law of return. But if you're born Jewish, you're no anti-Semite. You... Um, are actually, let's say you, there was actual case of a brother, Daniel Refusion, a Polish guy who hid out in a monastery in the Holocaust and later converted to Christianity. He was a Carmelite monk. He helped Jews escape the Holocaust. And after the war, he wanted to come to Israel because of the law of return. The Israeli Supreme Court ruled that you cannot be a, considered a Jew if you practice Christianity, any other religion except Judaism. You can be an atheist, but you can't be a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist. Now, that doesn't make any sense logically, but all right, the whole thing doesn't make any sense, Zionism. The, the thing to know about Zionism is everything is synthetic. Their nationality is synthetic. There's no such thing as a Jewish nationality. There's only a Jewish religion and American nationality, French nationality, or Italian nationality, so on. Their history is if synthetic because Ben-Gurion, once they got a country, they decided, Ben-Gurion hired a guy named ben and Dino to create a whole nationalist fake history. Um, and their his, even their names are fake. They, they wanted, they, they decided that they're going to have Middle Eastern culture because that's more better for marketing. Marketing was very important. See, the one thing to know about Zionism is that it's different than all other nationalist ideologies in the world. And because the nationalist ideology of Israel is Zionism, Israel is different than all other countries in the world. Here's how. The Zionists claim that they represented the Jewish people. At the time of Herzl, majority of Jews were not interested in being Zionists. Not only religious Jews, but non-religious Jews too. During the Balfour Declaration, 1917, the, there was one uh, Jewish member of the cabinet in England, and that was Edwin Montague. Montague said, no, you're crazy. I don't want to make a Balfour Declaration. We don't want the, what, what do you want? The Jews to be uh, foreigners in their own countries? Uh, you, you, this is anti-Semitic. Zionism, he said, the idea that the Jews are a nationality and Israel is at state or the Jews have a homeland in the Middle East, that's anti-Semitic. I know you want to get rid of the Jews, he said. I know Jews are not popular here, but I'm voting against this. You hear that? The only Jewish member of, of well, England's cabinet voted against Zionism, against the Balfour Declaration, because it was anti-Semitic. We knew it was anti-Semitic, but there were Orthodox Jews that said, look, you know what, maybe the Zionists can accomplish finding us at least a safe place to be, right? So we're going to kind of use the Zionists, we'll support them in their uh, quest to find a land 
but we're not going to support their ideology that the Jews are a nationality. That indeed is anti-Semitic. So they figured, you know what? An enemy of an enemy is my friend. So we're going to support this, support Zionism. Most Orthodox Jews said no, and most non-Orthodox Jews said no. Yet the Zionists said they are the uh, nationalist movement of the Jewish people. Uh, here's the biggest scam. They didn't represent the Jewish people. They were a minority, small minority of Jews. Theodor Herzl, in his book, Der Judenstaat, he claimed there's an actual, based it on some ancient Roman law called negotiorum gestio, which basically says that if uh, a piece of uh, chattel, uh, an object sitting on a boat has nobody to protect it because its owner is somewhere else, you are allowed to become its manager uh, with not only the uh, responsibility, but the authority to manage this thing. The Jews have nobody to speak for them. So I, Theodore Herzl, and the Zionist movement are now the official, official legal spokespeople of the Jews. So they came, and that's the thing. It was Zionism is not a national movement of the, Zion, of the Jews. It's a national movement of the Zionists in the speaking without permission, speaking unilaterally, in the name for all Jew, in the name of all the Jews for all Jews, and Zionism is not the self-determination movement of the Jewish people. It's not even a self-determination movement. It's an others' determination movement. Zionism has to do with the Zionists. They claim not only that we want self-determination. If Herzl and um, his guys Max Nordau and their clan their cabal wanted to have self-determination, so let them find some place and have self-determination, but they didn't do that. They were not satisfied to do that because they knew that people would not um, support them. They said, no, we're here to help the Jews. This is We represent the Jews. We speak in the name of the Jews. This is the Jewish movement. And th there were actually uh, pseudo-Zionist movements like the Canaanim, for example, that said, we're not even the Jews. We just want self-determination. And we call ourselves Canaanim. Uh, we're going to be Hebrews and we're going to live in Israel. It was in the 1950s. But it fizzled out because who would want to be part of that thing? What Herzl did, it was a genius idea, actually. Um, he, he said, look, let's take Jewish aspirations. Jewish, Jews always dis, uh, aspired to practice their religion freely. There's a Messiah that's going to come in the Jewish religion. And this Messiah will... will make the world holy. There will no, no longer be wars. The, as the prophecy says, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Uh, there will be no more wars. And we will be, the whole world will be free to serve, to connect to God. That's a better word than serving God. To connect to God and, and enjoy the perfection that is involved with being connected to perfection, which is God. You know, the, it's this is, Jewish theology. So Herzl said, well, let's politicize that. Let's change that and say, let's teach our children and teach everybody. Let's gaslight the Jews and, and the non-Jews and say, you know what? The Jews always aspired for political self-determination in Israel. There was a movement amongst the Zionists. They had other options that would have been much safer and less uh, conflicting with uh, like Palestinians. They had a Uganda plan. They had even Alaska was a possibility. Uh, there were some people that had some idea about making some land around Buffalo, uh, St. Lawrence River, somewhere around there, Canada. Um, but they, Herzl said for marketing, we need Palestine because the Jews have this, this, this love for that land. Now, I love, I have a love for that land, and it's because the land is holy. Anything that 
the adjective Jewish is attached to, it means it has to do with God. It has to do with our religion. If the Holy Land is connected to the Jews, it's not because of it's a political homeland. It's a holy land. You know what a homeland is? So in English, the word homeland doesn't mean much. But in other languages, you tell me, maybe Italian. Um, it means in Hebrew, it's Moledes, the place the nation was born, like La Patria in French or Mother Russia. Does it work like that in Italian? Yes, and in German as well. There you go. But it's a paradox, isn't it? Because this ideology that was not fabricated, but certainly curated by Herzl, was born of the Dreyfus Affair, which you mentioned earlier. Dreyfus, for our listeners, Alfred Dreyfus was uh, wrongfully convicted of treason in 1894 against France. He was a military officer. Many historians actually blame Herzl, not only with creating Zionism as a political stage, but for misinterpreting the Dreyfus Affair. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes, Herzl more than misinterpreted, he lied about it. Now, according to Shlomo Avineri, Israel's greatest political scientist in its history, he didn't necessarily lie, he just forgot what he himself wrote about it. The Dreyfus, first of all, Herzl was a Zionist before the Dreyfus Affair. And Herzl made up this um, epiphanic awakening that he had at the Dreyfus Affair. He made it up. He wanted to make, I have a thesis about that, you know the story of Moses, the Messiah, the uh, Redeemer of the Jews, who started on his mission after he saw an Egyptian uh, killing a Jew. It's in the book of Exodus in the Bible. Herzl fancied himself a modern-day Moses, like a Messiah. He even had some crazy dream he claims he had when he was a teenager about how uh, Moses took him up to heaven or God, to somebody took him up to heaven and uh, God said, this is my Messiah or Moses says this, like crazy dream that he was the Messiah. And he wanted a launch his career in a more modern way, the same way Moses did. When you see a Jew being persecuted, now you go out on your mission to help the Jews. But he lied. He was a Zionist before that. He wrote a play a Zionist, with Zionist themes before the Dreyfus Affair. But worse yet, Herzl covered the Dreyfus Affair for a newspaper. He was a newspaper writer once upon a time, and he happened to have been the reporter on the Dreyfus Affair. And when they took out Dreyfus, yes, it was anti-Semitic, and yes, uh, Dreyfus was innocent, and yes, everybody realized that uh, eventually. But when they took out Dreyfus, uh, when they took him out and marched him down the street, Herzl wrote, people were yelling, kill the traitor, kill the traitor. Later, when Herzl decided to use the Dreyfus affair as his Zionist epiphany, he changed the story. He said they were yelling, kill the Jews, kill the Jew. So... Now, it's pretty clear that Herzl lied, uh, if, unless you want to judge him favorably and say, no, you know, he probably forgot what he wrote. I say that in terms of his character, if you look at his character, he lied. But that, that's, the, that's the more logical way to, more logical explanation, if you look at who Herzl was. But Herzl invented this idea um, that uh, the Jews, well, he invented political Zionism before Herzl for Herzl, there were Zionists. There was Moses Hess, Emma Lazarus, Leo Pinsker. But without Herzl, Zionism would have been just some theoretical thing that people speak about uh, in coffee shops. Herzl actually ran the operations for Zionism and made it into an actual political movement and succeeded. Now, Herzl, by the way, um, succeeded only 
with the help of the Christian Zionists. We have evangelicals, right? We know about them. Now, Italy is more of a Catholic country. Italy, Greece, France. Britain and America are more Protestant country. A group of Protestants, uh, Restorationists, we call them evangelicals, believe, and they existed from the late 1500s, early 1600s. They believe that the Jews are going to return to their lands, kind of a messianic return. They're going to make a state, Israel. And then Jesus is coming and the Jews will either re convert to Christianity or get killed. Uh, there are some other interpretations, but this is the main line. And these Christian Zionists existed way before the Jewish Zionists, generations before Herzl was even born, or any Zionist, Jewish Zionist was. There was a, a German Reverend William Heckler who uh, approached Herzl when he saw Herzl wrote his book, and he believed that Herzl was a fulfillment of these uh, Protestant Christian uh, prophecies. And he helped Herzl. He was very well connected. He, was, he knew heads of state, and he introduced Herzl to them. And the, much of the Zionist philosophy that developed was Christian. Even today, Benjamin Netanyahu speaks sometimes about the Bible. He knows nothing about the Bible. He's not an observant Jew. He uses Christian interpretations of the Bible uh, as opposed to Jewish ones all the time. So the Zionists changed the idea of the Jewish people. Uh, according to the Judaism, the Jewish people were born at Mount Sinai, as I described. According to Israel, in Israel's constitution, not constitution, I'm sorry, they don't have a constitution in their Declaration of Independence. It says, here the Jewish nation was born, meaning the Jewish nation was born when Joshua brought them into the Holy Lands. What they did was they took Judaism, they took Jewish history, they took Jewish aspirations, they took Jewish emotions, and they transformed them. They just nudged them away from the realm of the religious into the realm of the political. The, they told the Jews, look, we, we're not interested in any ideology. Just help us because we're going to protect you from anti-Semites. And then they told the Jews, we're going to protect you from anti-Semites. They told themselves, their fellow Zionists, that we really want to transform the Jews. Jews that knew about the Zionist plan said no Zionism is heretical against Judaism. Most Jews just said stay away from the Zionists. There were some that said, you know what, let's use them. Let's let them get us a, a place that we could live in peace and we'll just continue being Jews and there'll be some other religion. And then there was the propaganda, the bullying, the uh, brainwashing and the bribing that the Zionists, the Zionists knew that they needed the cooperation of Jews, cooperation of, of the uh, Gentile governments they had because of Christian Zionism. Britain was the had the mandate, and there they were a Protestant country, and they had Christian Zionists there, and uh, Lord Balfour was one of them. He he was not a, he didn't like Jews. Uh, he voted against the immigration, but he he wanted the Jews to have this land. He was a Christian Zionist, so they had in those days Britain was their main big brother, so to speak. Uh, but they needed to convince the Jews. So they told the Jews all sorts of different stories. Uh, but the Jews weren't willing to accept Zionism as an ideology until uh, they started bribing the Jews, we'll support your religion, we'll support your institutions, we'll protect you from anti-Semites. And then came some other confused 
rabbinic ideologies, we consider them heretical, that a man, Rabbi Cook, that said, no, nationalism is part of our religion. That resulted in today's settlers. You know, the crazy settlers, the the um, militant, the crazies. That was because of one rabbi, his name was Abraham Cook, who was a big nationalist, and he regurgitated nationalist ideology in Jewish uh, Jewish um, language, in rabbinic language, posing as some kind of mystic, and people figured that according to Jewish mysticism that's so deep we can't understand it, nationalism is part of Judaism. Now Rabbi Cook was branded a heretic or an idol worshiper by many rabbis uh, who knew what he was doing. Uh, he, of course, denied what he was doing to many people when confronted. Uh, long story short, Zionism is, according to Judaism, idol worship. It's just a political movement. It doesn't represent the Jewish people. Um, the best thing that we can do, if I may mention what I think is the best way to solve this Middle Eastern quagmire, because even in the short time that I've just spoken, your listeners are surely thinking, my God, this is such a complicated, wild, and crazy situation. How am I going to make heads or tails out of it, right? I'll bet you that's what they're <laughs> right. So, Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> it is. That's why my book is almost 1,400 pages. And in the introduction, there's a section that says why this book is so big. And without going through from beginning to end, which I didn't have uh, a chance to do now, this is just the Cliff Notes version, or the Cliff Notes version of the Cliff Notes, um, it's, it's hard to get a, a clarity. Now, what I would, what, what really needs to happen is much more than what's happening now, currently. I mean, obviously, the situation, what's, what's happening to the Gazans, my gosh, it's uh, horrifying. I, 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 I have no words for what's going on over there, you know? And what happened at the Nova um, Rave, the music festival, also horrific. I have no words for that. And, uh, and there's no justification for either horror. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. To what degree, however, do you see Zionism as a reality behind the scenes? I'm talking about the Israeli state, Knesset, the IDF as opposed to the ideology that the media are not BFF, because the media is spinning this, as you well know. Zionism is not 90, not 100, but 1,000% behind the whole thing. And I'll explain to you why. And the media, well, I don't know how it works in Italy, but the media in America, the media in Israel, any media I've seen in any country, um, I was only in Italy in my life for a few days, uh, you can't get reality from them. But uh, who said, uh, who, who was, I think it was Albert Einstein that said, if you don't read the media, you're uninformed. If you read the media, you are misinformed. <laughs> uh, so the reality is like this. This whole problem is 
This whole problem is caused by an ideology that says Israel must be a Jewish state. Israel, I started saying before, Zionism means the following. If you want a short version of what Zionism is, Netanyahu says this, it's on Israel's website, it's on many places. Israel is what France is to the French and Italy is to the Italians. Israel is to the fill-in-the-blank. So, normal without Zionism, if Israel would be a normal country, what France is to the French and Italy is to the Italians, Israel is to the Israelis. Very simple. With Zionism, what France is to the French, Italy is to the Italians, Israel is to the Jews. There is no country in the world that claims to be the country of people such as myself, who are not its citizens, who are never lived there, my family never did, I don't plan on living there, I have nothing to do with it, my, fam my family's from Poland, on my mother's side, Russia and England. Yet Israel, by law, their nation-state law, says they are, there is no Israeli nationality according to Israeli law. Uh, the Supreme Court of Israel said we don't want to make an Israeli nationality because that would be against Zionism. Zionism says Jews are a nationality and Israel is its state. All definitions of Zionism presuppose those two things today. Israel is the state of the Jews. It's, and, and if people understand that, they'll understand everything. That means two things. Thing number one, Israel is, claims to be my state, even though it's not. And Israel claims not to be the state of non-Jewish people who live in Israel, who are Israeli citizens, even though it is. Only Jews have a right to national self-determination in Israel. Nothing to discuss over there. Um, the Jews, <laughs> me, I never lived in Israel. I am considered, well, Netanyahu claims he's my prime minister. Israel claims it's my government and my state. First, that's anti-Semitic. I'm an American. Sorry, I'm an American. My, my religion is Judaism, but I have no other country. Israel claims they're my country, and they tell everybody in the world they are. Jonathan Pollard, the Israeli spy that spied on America for Israel, or he was an American spy for Israel, he now lives in Israel, and he recently said that he would advise American Jews to spy on America for Israel. Israel claims to be my country. I'm sorry. Israel claims that it's what's going to protect me from another Holocaust. I'm sorry I pay my taxes and I expect the New York NYPD, New York Police Department, and the U.S. military to protect me like it does all other citizens, right? And this, there is no other country like that in the world. If I move to Italy now and I uh, learn the Italian language and imbibe Italian culture, my kids, and become an Italian citizen, um, eventually my kids will be Italians, right? Um, you can go to Israel and imbibe Israeli culture, and after hundreds of years, after centuries or generations, you will still not be a Jew. And the nationality of Israel is Jewish. It is not Israeli, it's Jewish. We have to understand that there is no other country like that. And there, there's a contradiction and a paradox. Israel says it's the state of the Jews, but not everybody who's an Israeli citizen becomes Jewish. You see, in Italy, there's nationality and citizenship is is the same. And, and eventually, you become Italian. You can never become Jewish unless you go through a religious conversion. 
even though Israel claims it's a secular state, not a religious state. Zionism makes no sense. And let me give you examples of how understanding this simple thing solves most of the problem. First, Israel argues that, well, there are, they keep calling themselves the only Jewish state. They say there are, I don't know what, how many, uh, a couple dozen Arab states or Muslim states. Well, and only one Jewish one. Well, guess what? There is not a single Arab state or Muslim state in existence in the way that Israel claims to be a Jewish state. Because although there are states that are majority Muslim and even run according to Muslim law, there is not a single Muslim or Arab state to, that claims to be the nation state of all Arabs or all Muslims. Israel claims to be the nation state of all Jews. And there is no state like that anywhere in the world to claim, and they get to define what Jew is. Remember, a Jew that practices Christianity is not a Jew. A Jew that is uh, atheist is a Jew. So they decided on a picture of who they want to be their nationals, and they're locking out everybody else, even though the else, the other that they're locking out could be a citizen, a loyal citizen, serve in their army, serve on their Supreme Court. And that's why they always say, well, there are Arabs serving in the Supreme Court and Muslims. Yeah, that's fine. But according to Israel's nation-state law, that doesn't matter. It's still not their country. They still don't have rights for national self-determination. Whereas me, I do. You see, there is no country like that. Um, Israel claims that, well, you know, if you're against Zionism, that means you're an anti-Semite, which is, of course, a joke. I think if you're a Zionist, you're an anti-Semite, because amongst other reasons, very simple, you ask a Zionist, what is my country? What is my country? My family's from Poland. My father immigrated here. I was born here. I have grandchildren here, okay? My grandchildren, one, two, three, third generation American, born here. Tell me, who are my, my grandchildren? What is their country, America or Israel? Well, you're Jewish. Israel claims to be their country, or maybe both. So where's my loyalty supposed to be? You see, Israel claims to that Jews must be loyal to Israel. As What about the other country? Well, different Zionists will try to worm out of the question different ways. But this is anti-Semitic. I say Zionism, is, and instead of saying when does anti-Zionism anti uh, pass, when does it uh, cross the line into anti-Semitism, we need to start asking the question the other way. When does Zionism cross the line into anti-Semitism? Say, well, if you want a safe place for Jews to run in case they, they need, that's one thing. But once Israel calls itself the Jewish state, once it claims to be the nation state of the Jews, once it claims that uh, Jews uh, owe allegiance to it, once it claims that it's not the country of all its citizens, then that's anti-Semitic. Now, the Palestinians, they're not Jewish. Now, Israel needs to maintain a Jewish majority. So you have these millions of Palestinians that are not Israeli citizens. If they would be, then a one-person-one-vote system would have a non-Jewish majority. And you cannot have a Jewish state in the way that Israel defines a Jewish state and a democracy as well, because you need to maintain the Jewish majority. And it has to be some kind of laws that separate Jews from non-Jews. Here you have the nation-state law. Otherwise, then it's a regular democracy. And now, I'm not the one that's saying this. Our Secretary of State, John Kerry, said it. 
um, on his way out. He was under Barack Obama. And not only him, Mayor Kahana, the right-wing Zionist, who was a member of the Knesset, kicked out of the Knesset. His party was illegalized in Israel because he was... Um, because it's too racist. He claimed you cannot have a democratic state and a Jewish state as well. You want a democracy, that means it's the state of the citizens. You want a Jewish state, that means it's the state of the Jews. The issue is that simple. I have skin in the game because my Congress, under pressure by Zionists, just claimed that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. They made me an anti-Semite. You hear that? I'm an anti-Semite. So if Israel is going to start calling Jews anti-Semites, we see how absurd this notion is. Israel needs to become a normal country, uh, a democracy for all its citizens. One thing it needs to change. Israel needs to stop being the state of the Jews. If it wants to be, it's not run according to Jewish law the way uh, Muslim states are running, run according to Muslim law. It does not run according to Jewish law. Never mind that the first Jewish law is that a uh, uh, Jews are not allowed to have a state while in exile during this uh, time in our history. But there's nothing in Israel that, that runs according to Jewish law. They run according to secular law. Israel, Israel's prime ministers have said that. Their courts have said that. Um, they can try to follow Jewish law. The Jewish people, the orthodox religious people, can try to uh, protect, rather, Jewish law. But Israel doesn't run according to Jewish law. The only thing Jewish about Israel is that it claims to be the state of the Jews as opposed to its citizens that are non-Jews. It's very simple. What is so hard to ask that you become the state of your citizens uh, and not the state of these this, this category that you arbitrarily define as Jews? By the way, the Jewish uh, legal definition of Jew, according to Jewish law, is not the same as Israel's definition of Jew. One example I gave is that According to Jews, according to Jewish law, an atheist is no more or less a Jew than a Jew that practices Christianity. You're either atheism is a religion, so to speak, or at least it's it's non it's not the Jewish religion as much as Christianity is more more so. At least Christians believe in the Creator of the world. They believe in a God. They believe in a Messiah, not ours, but they believe in one. Atheists don't even believe in that. Atheists are further from Judaism than Christians are, and certainly more fur further than Muslims are. Uh, Muslims don't believe in a trinity, you know, they're, they're closer to Judaism than Christianity in terms oh, of theology, at least. Yeah, and language, too. And I could hear too. when you were saying certain words, I speak table Hebrew, uh, uh -huh. <laughs> but I do speak Arabic. And it's very fascinating, both languages, because I could hear when you were speaking that, like Arabic, Arabic has a, in general, overwhelmingly, a three-letter root for words. So one word can be a verb, it can be an adjective, it can be a noun, it can be many nouns, like kateb, makteb, etc., etc., and it becomes desk, that means to write. book, to write, if it's a verb, okay. uh, a writer. That's also. Yeah, yeah. It, well, a lot of Hebrew, modern-day Hebrew, for sure, was taken from Arabic, and I'm sure historically they share so many roots. But one thing that a lot of our listeners, and then those on social media, simply do not understand is how diverse Judaism is in terms of a cultural heritage. And I give an example of the Pittsburgh Platform, which was a pivotal 1895 document that the American reform movement in Judaism attempted to adopt in order 
to modernize the approach to their faith. Now, here is a very interesting point of the document. Now, point five, we recognize in the modern era of universal culture and of heart and intellect, the approaching of the realization of Israel's great messianic hope for the establishment of the kingdom of truth, justice, and peace among all men. We consider ourselves no longer a nation, but a religious community, and therefore expect neither a return to Palestine, nor a sacrificial worship under the sons of Aaron, nor the restoration of any of the laws concerning the Jewish state. So you had many people pushing back already on this. The ideology of Zionism was flawed from the very beginning, and Jews themselves knew this. Yes, as I mentioned, the majority of Jews, both religious and secular, rejected Zionism. And just as it's important for people to know that just as in Christianity, for example, there are different sects like Catholics versus Protestants, and you know the difference between the two is vast, and in by Islam there's uh, Sunni and uh, uh, Shia, we have we consider Reformed Judaism a different religion than Orthodox Judaism, and Zionism is idol worship. You can be an Orthodox Jew and a Zionist, but that's like being an Orthodox Jew and being an idol worshiper. They are pagan land worshippers. Um, and an Orthodox Jew, he's not allowed by law, but he has free will to choose to be a pagan land worshiper and introduce pagan land worship into his Judaism. And we believe Zionists actually did that. Let me, as long as you're you're quoting uh, Jews, I want to have in front of me a book written by a guy, Isaac Lewin. Uh, he was Rabbi Dr. Isaac Lewin. He was a the president of a uh, organization that today is a political party in Israel's Knesset, uh, Aguda, was an Orthodox Jewish party. Um, and he's uh, quoting the founder, one of the founding lay people of the movement, a man, Jacob Rosenheim. And he's talking about this before Israel existed. What do they want? Now, again, many Jews rejected the whole idea. And here's a opinion of a very this again this group is in today's knesset okay listen to this quote in deference to the solemn oath imposed upon the jewish people by our talmud for the entire period of exile and that's why i said uh, israel's were not allowed okay wait and also because of realistic political considerations we firmly reject any reference to military power in relations between Jews and Arabs. We do not wish to live in Palestine on the edge of the sword. Elementary political reason requires us to express that openly without diplomatic circumlocutions. The world and the Arabs must know, and must know as in italics, that peaceful understanding and cooperation are the goal of Jewish policy in Palestine. Now, these are people that accepted the inevitable reality, whether they wanted it or not is another story. They didn't. Uh, if there was going to be war between the Jews and the, the Zionists, actually, and the Arabs in 1948, then there is no, even though right now they are a member of the Knesset, they are against wars between Zionists, between Jews and Palestinians. You heard that. 
It says the Arabs must know, both because of Jewish law and simple political considerations. It's ridiculous. The problem is that today, Zionism, you know, I wish I had time to discuss Zionist propaganda. That's an entire, I, I should write a book about that in and of itself. It's incredible Zionist propaganda. They've, they've, they've highlighted the Holocaust as the normative Jewish point of history. And they've made it front and center of their identity. A Pew survey not long ago said, it asked, um, what's most essential to your Jewish identity? The answer that most of the surveyed people, Jews, gave was remembering the Holocaust. Remembering the Holocaust becomes part of their identity. And the fact that people tried to kill the Jews and persecute us, and they always will, this is their ideology. That's literally part of their identity. Herzl said that the definition of a Jew, the Jewish people are put are whoever the anti-Semites hate. Distress binds us together, he said. And there was actually a hit song in Israel, an actual hit song. It was called Ha'olam Kulo Negdenu. The whole world is against us. And the lyrics go, the whole world is against us. We don't care. Let them go to hell. Basically, that's the song. There are, you know, a few times they had the chorus and there, there are different stanzas, but that's the gist of the song. It's insane. The Zionists are, they're, they're full of this ideology, this, these complexes. There was a Newsweek uh, reporter named Alsop who once told Golda Meir that uh, she can't make, it's very hard for to talk to Israel about peace and uh, this, this that Isaac Lewin mentioned, that they want to live in peace with the Arabs because she has a Masada complex. Masada was uh, a place of, uh, well, it wasn't part of Jewish history, really, but Zionists resurrected it as if it was, uh, a place where uh, thugs, a bunch of thugs and murderers ran to. And uh, when the Romans uh, kicked, uh, destroyed Jerusalem, they went to the fortress that these people were located in and uh, killed them all. Well, they committed suicide. Actually, they didn't even fight uh, Zionists. Yeah, they don't. They never fought. Not one Roman soldier was killed. Um, they committed suicide. There were some survivors, but by and large, they killed themselves. It's right. They killed other people too. Um, so you have a Masada complex. They killed Jews, by the way, these, these Masada people. He, this Alsop guy told Golda Meir, you have a Masada complex. And she says to him, she answers him, yes, we have a Masada complex and a pogrom complex and a Holocaust complex, okay? And th that's true. The problem is that most people consider their complexes psychological baggage to, and they try to get rid of it. They, them, they, they go to therapy to try to get rid of their complexes. Zionists consider this, this dark victimization, this I'm being uh, persecuted or everybody wants to kill me. Hitler is around the corner. As Not only are they cognizant of it, and not only is it front and center of their consciousness, it's literally their identity, a core part of their identity. And when you're talking to people like that, it's so easy. for, And then they tell them, you know what? Israel is the safest place in the world for Jews. It's the only place you can go if there's another Holocaust. <laughs> and, and now 
Now you expect them. Now, obviously, Israel is not the safest place in the world for Jews. In fact, it's the most dangerous. Even before October seventh, it was statistically. But it doesn't matter. People are they're brainwashed. They're full of this this paranoia. Holocaust, Holocaust. They go, part of your Jewish experience is going to Auschwitz. You look, I'm not. The problem is. I'm not saying a Holocaust denial, that's bad, obviously, but the issue, of course, there are lessons to learn from the Holocaust. But the problem is in Zionist, uh, in Zionist ideology, the lessons to learn of the Holocaust always end with, okay, now we have Israel. That's the last chapter in the story of the Holocaust. That's the lesson. Their lessons go in the wrong direction. And therefore, if, if from the time they're children, they learn about the Holocaust, and nobody has anything against teaching the Holocaust, but you see that's part of Israeli propaganda. It's not a question of denying the Holocaust or teaching it. The question is, what's the last chapter of the story? If, if the last chapter of the story is, well, okay, now there's Israel to protect the Jews, well, then you just... Uh, you just exploited the Holocaust and used it to uh, for, for Zionist reasons. And now if you tell a Jew, you know, I want Israel, you tell a Zionist, excuse me, that I want Israel to become a normal democracy. Ha, you want to kill me? Because in their head, they know about the Holocaust story, and they know if you remove that last chapter, what remains? Guest chambers. So in their mind, it's a, a, a binary choice, either guest chambers are Israel. And of course, everybody supports teaching about the Holocaust. You see, they don't say we want to teach about Israel. They say teach about the Holocaust. Israel's the last chapter in that story, you know, and, and teach about Judaism. Well, Israel's the last chapter in that story. So if you don't want Israel, you don't like Judaism because they kind of changed Judaism into a political thing. You, you don't like Jews and you want Jews killed. And this is what we're dealing with. What we need to do, what we need to do is we need to separate Israel from the Jews. Any connection, the closer we get to Netanyahu's equation, what Francis, what Italy is to the Italians, Israel is to the Jews. As opposed to Israel is to the Israelis, the more trouble we have in the Middle East. Because people are focusing on Israel's behavior. They're dropping bombs. They're focusing on Hamas's behavior. They're killing people at a, at a music festival. That's not enough. You need to focus on the ideologies that drive this behavior. A lot of people, however, do say that Hamas is the occupied or Palestinians are the occupied. And another debate raging all over. And it's a fascinating issue because it goes beyond chicken and egg. It's, it's rather a case of where do you start your conception of history? Do you go back 2,000, 3,000 years to the Middle East? Do you go back 100, 200 years where Palestinians were the majority? Uh, and this is part of the problem is that when you marry these kinds of faux history, and I say faux history because the census taking of this time was done by colonial powers largely. When I saw the protest the other week in London, I believe it was almost three weeks ago, I got quite upset. It was an anti-Semitism protest. And I'm thinking, wait, one side is bombing the hell out of the other that is not armed, that has no armies, and they're Semitic. So it's like a bit irony day. It really is troubling to me how many people believe that you had to have that march on a Sunday, even though the day before was a proper ceasefire march that was attended 
by everyone, Palestinians, Jews, Christians, atheists, what have you. There seems to be, and this is something I am trying to elaborate in my brain before I write about, but I think there is a historical guilt among even young British people. I'm thinking of Douglas Murray's out there in a flat jacket where he stands no chance of being harmed. It's not 7 October any longer, yet he's berating Hamas, and there's little conception for what the occupation has done to one side of this. And the buttressing narrative, of course, is Zionism is good, if you criticize Israel, you're not only an anti-Zionist, you're an anti-Semite, you hate Jews. I've been called anti-Semitic these past weeks. It's fascinating. And I don't run about talking about my personal life, identity, what have you, but it's like, what a, what a way to derail a conversation. Let's talk about the history because I have gone back to the records, the quote unquote census again, how the French or how the British took census during their colonization of many countries. Sometimes was very good, sometimes was very bad. Sometimes they just forgot to mention that they killed half the Algerian population, which happened in the 1860s. A lot of these people on Twitter will go off about how Arabs are just wanting to kill Jews, and I'm like, not a hundred years ago, not even less. The Arab world was one of the safest places for Jews. Let's not forget. Oh, but when the state of Israel, I'm like, wait, when the state of Israel occurred, that became a political conflict. And I'm not saying that Arab, Islamo Arab nations did correctly, but in some, they just said, okay, there's your homeland, go, because they were a bit annoyed by the displacement of Palestinians. Again, that gets wiped under the carpet when people discuss the history or when we talk about terrorism. I have to remind people on Twitter, uh, who do you think fought for Israel? Ergen much? I mean, have you read the book Perfidy? Brilliant read. Of course, when I was a kid. It's a great read. That was Ben Hecht's wonderful book. Uh, I might link it. It's a PDF anyways, online, free and downloadable. I learned tons. My first night in Israel, the guy at my, it was a hotel, but a downtrodden hotel, gave it to me to read and I couldn't put it down. I was up all night reading it. And you start to understand that 40 years ago, you would not have Pierce Morgan interviewing someone and saying, okay, so is Nelson Mandela a terrorist? Yes or no? You didn't ask, answer the question. I don't know if you've been following Pierce lately. He's more sympathetic to Palestinians than many major talking heads, as you were, but he cannot get his head around that just like Mandela and Stephen Biko and many others involved with the ANC and even more radical groups because the ANC was Pepsi Cola compared to some, or slave revolts. We published a piece a few weeks ago on the Nat Turner slave revolt. Of course white people got killed. White people were enslaving black people and one day this massacre happened. Surprise, surprise. And I tell people, you know, I would not I cannot even fathom, I've lost a child, I cannot fathom what Israeli families are doing right now with their kids, family members, children of neighbors, kidnapped. That must be horrible. And I know there's no justification for this. At the same time, one of our readers wrote me and said, what were they doing having a rave outside of a concentration camp? Now, a lot of people will find that comment harsh, but I absolutely understand what she meant because I could not go to Gaza when I lived in the West Bank in Jerusalem. It was already closed because of the Rachel Corey affair. Now, 
in part, it drew on from that. But what I saw in Gaza as the wall was being built, this was back in 2003, was an impossibility to go for what would have been a 20 minute ride for people riding in Egged buses. But if you were in Palestinian transport, those taxis, you would be stopped at least in those 20 minutes, uh, four times by houses that have been bulldozed or various other structures in the middle of the road. You'd have to walk through 20 minutes sometimes, sometimes only 10. IDF guards, young enough to be your grandson, how, depending on your age, kids. And you would take that 20 minute trip that Israeli settlers would take, would take you, because I always traveled with Palestinians because I wanted to know what they lived. It would take hours. And when I say hours, it could have been three, could have been five. And I interviewed that very day. I was going to meet a psychiatrist. She had just bought a house with her husband and she was going to meet me there, but she couldn't because it had just been shelled. Yeah, just built like the week before they moved in. Now, again, and I worked with people. I worked with wonderful people in Jerusalem. There are Palestinian Jewish groups. You turn on major media and you know this, they focus on bloodthirsty Israelis. They rarely cover the refuseniks. They rarely cover the many Israelis who want peace, including the very many demonstrations these families had made since 7 October, saying, out of power, they don't want this prime minister anymore. They see what he's doing. And in a very sad irony, is they're living exactly what their government has handed to Palestinians. Sadly, I say, underscoring many times, because even though Hamas killed people, and that was very bad, their goal was to kidnap and do an exchange of prisoners to essentially try to maneuver some kind of political power. Now, one can argue the ills of this and the excesses of this, but what the Western media never focuses upon while they're pumping Zionism, Zionism narratives, are the many Israelis who disagree with their government, who realize that set settlements have caused this. The settlements are a huge thorn in the side of the Palestinian population, right? Well, the, the settlements prevent a uh, two-state solution on the West Bank. And now uh, the, <laughs> there's not, not really much of a hope for a two-state solution in Gaza. There is no Gaza to have a two-state solution in anymore. Um, right. The, the, all this is true. The problem is, the problem is two things. In term, when I say the problem, I mean the problem in terms of this resulting in a uh, effective solution, such discussion. Although it's all true and it's all necessary to have this discussion, here's the problem. Problem number one. Israel has a government that was duly elected, and although there are many citizens in Israel that believe uh, that what Israel is doing in settlements, it's all wrong. There were people when I was a kid who believed the war in Vietnam that America was running was wrong, and there are people that believed every war we had was wrong. Nonetheless, we have a democratic elections, and the government gets to do whatever it decides. If people don't like what this the settlements they could de-elect the government and elect an anti-settlement government but that has never happened recently in recent his history right. so all of that you know those people are not they're inconsequential in terms of bottom line settlements continue um and they will continue and the all of this 
will continue to happen. Um, yes, if you want to defend Israelis and say not all Israelis are for the settlements, that's true. That's not going to help the Palestinians and not going to help peace. And these arguments, uh, although all valid, we have to, I, I have to realize, we all have to realize that in every war, in every political issue, aside, there, there may only be one side to the story, but there are, people will take both sides. It depends on your politics, if you're right wing or left wing. It depends what news you read or watch. It depends where you get your news. There, never mind history um, about deciding historical questions or whether you start on October 7th or 70 years ago or 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago. People disagree on something that happened, never mind 70 years ago, 70 days ago or 70 minutes ago. And even though today we have social media and we have all of these means of communication, literally today there are people arguing literally when Israel bombs a civilian place, oh, they really wanted Hamas and there were human shields. Other people say, no, they're, they're targeting civilians. Other people say, no, they're not targeting civilians, but it's indiscriminate. And if we will never come to a conclusion arguing about these things, what will happen is that uh, everybody will be satisfied that you know people who think well we have to have a discussion they'll be satisfied by there being a discussion but the discussion will just distract us from the real reasons behind all this problem that i think are really unarguable i think that this everything you described is true and everything you described though is the result of the problem it's not the problem and the problem itself is this idea of israel claiming to be the state of the jewish people as opposed to the state of its citizens and there is no other country in the world that does it from what i from as far as i understand and i've asked historians and other people it's no country in the world has ever done such a thing then at the very least, nowadays, there is no such type of nationalism. And that idea is causing the problem. Now, how to change that is, is easier than we think. We don't need Israel to change their law. They're not going to change their law. The Zionists will not give up their country. They will not. Because they will think, you know what? Okay, I, I here. let me play devil's advocate, okay, June? Here's devil's advocate. You know what? You're right. Gaza, the... They shouldn't be bombing Gaza. None of this should happen. So what do you want us to do? You, you want us to, to um, okay, the settlements are there now. What do you want us to do? You want us to give up our country, a one-state solution? Two-state solution is dead. You want us to give up a one-state solution? Well, what are we going to do when Hitler comes back tomorrow? It's easy for you to say, June, you're sitting in Italy and you're not Jewish, so you don't care. But we're Jewish, and you know what? There were people like you, June, who anyway we begged to help us during the Holocaust, and people like you said, go to hell to the Jewish people. We're not waiting for that again. We said never again. We made a promise, and we're going to keep that promise to ourselves. You could uh, try to convince us to give us our life to give up our life preserver, but we have an army now and we will defend ourselves. And yes, you know what? It could be Israel's wrong for doing what they're doing, but you know what? If you find a better solution, then fine. But the solution cannot involve the disarming of the Jewish people, making us, making us vulnerable again, making us uh, uh, susceptible to being trained uh, uh, to be 
put into trains and shoved into gas chambers. If you could find a solution that will not allow, that will prevent, uh, give us insurance against another Hitler, go right ahead. So far, nobody in the world even cared, never mind anybody even trying, ever coming up with an idea. Well, certainly the recycling of the Holocaust has had a huge part in this, even beyond yes. Zionism. It's been, although Zionism is also resultant of the state of Israel's resultant uh, of the Holocaust as well. I mean, this is no coincidence, obviously, due to what happened in Europe. But the, the Hitler absorption level is too much already. And I've seen this in other tactics. I've covered the gender issue in the UK, and now it's spread all over the world where men just have to say, I'm a woman, and they get transferred to a woman's prison. They compete against women who are half their size in sports. And that kind of um, rhetoric is enmeshed with, oh, you're a Nazi if you don't support my rights as a transgender woman. Mm -hmm. And I see this a lot where Hitler comes up even in the weirdest places, like a, a man on a bicycle competing against a woman. Hitler's got to take a stage exit, I think. We're overusing him. Yeah, how? How is the question? How do we do that? Especially to the Jews, to a guy on a bicycle, a gender thing, that's one level. The Jews, every Ashkenazi Jew my age, not every, 90% of the kids my age in my class growing up in school, 90%, unless they were you know, from Oriental, from the uh, Arabic countries, 90% of the Jews from the European countries, our parents were Holocaust survivors. So go tell the Jews who are, now, the truth is like this. The truth is that there was one Hitler in history of the world. There were pogroms. There were there was anti-Semitism. Today is different. And I know they said Germany is different. But the fact is, there was only one Hitler, one guy in history that decided, I'm going all over the world killing all the Jews. And even if there's going, and, and if let's say in, look, if let's say in uh, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, 300, 1,000 years from now, there is no Holocaust. Was it worth it? This uh, Israel, the premium that they have to pay in terms of wars in, in order to in case, in order to have this insurance policy, at what point in time does the premium for this insurance policy become too expensive? How many Jews, never mind Palestinians, how many Jews have to die in order to ensure that in case one day there's a Holocaust, in case if, and if they're able to, people are able to escape and go to Israel, and if Israel lets them in, which is not so simple either. The, they, they, Israel, Israel, if you read perfidy, so you know exactly what I mean that Israel actually, what's not in their political interest, they will gladly sacrifice Jewish lives for. But let's assume a confluence of all um, uh, fortunate circumstances, right? Favorable circumstances. How, tell me, how, how, when does there have to be a Holocaust? And how many people have to be killed in this future Holocaust to make this insurance policy worth it? How many Jews have to die before you realize that this insurance policy is too expensive? Number two, the Holocaust, uh, the reason, what, forget about Hitler, yes, it's true, Hitler has to take more of a back seat, but this idea of it's part of their identity, that's, it's not taking a back seat to their identity. Well, I think what needs to be done is the arguments needs to be, there's too much already, there's, there's an easier argument here. The idea that Israel is the Jewish state, the idea that Israel is not the state of its citizens, if you want to be a Jewish state, you know, then there's one thing about 
one thing of being a Jewish state the way Arabs are Arabic states or Muslims are Muslim states. You don't run according to Jewish law. A majority Jews, okay, so let the let the Palestinians go. Let them have their own state. But the idea that you're the state of the Jews, meaning that non-Jews in your country, Israel's not their country, and Jews, you represent Jews and you speak for Jews all over the world, there's absolutely no excuse for that. No excuse, no self-defense excuse, no excuse at all. And that's what needs to be emphasized, that Israel's different than all countries in the world. And let it be the same as any other country. Let it be the same. It wants to be a democracy. It has to be the same as other democracies. There is not a single country in the world that claims to be the country that the nationality of that country is separate from its citizens. And at the same time, the citizens can never, ever become a national unless they go through a religious conversion and you claim to be a secular country, not a religious country. At the same time, you, you claim to be the country of Jewish people in other countries who have their own country are not interested in your dual loyalty tropes. This, these things are the undergirdings of Zionism that make no sense and need to be attacked. These, ide these pieces of their ideology. Now, nobody wants to be involved in this. Nobody wants to talk about this. Because, well, people think, well, that's an internal argument amongst the Jews. Why should I get involved with it? No problem. You don't want to get involved with it. Then it's this is what's driving all of this. Yes. And plus the unresolved history where I mentioned earlier about this kind of collaboration between the British and the Zionists. Meanwhile, they also made backdoor deals with the Palestinians saying, thanks for fighting the Ottoman in the First World War. We'll also give you this land so they were speaking out both sides of their mouths the colonizers all of this all of this needs to be publicized i i think that the arguments that are not being made that are sitting there right in front of us but they're not being made because people are reluctant to talk about this idea of are oh, the jews a nationality are the jews a religion but the bottom line is Every American in the world should feel offended that there's a country in the Middle East that claims that it is the country of uh, several thousands of American citizens against unilaterally. Uh, people all over the world should be offended. I mean, I have a right to be a national of any country I want. If I don't like America, I move to Italy. And if they take me, I'll be a, a national. I'll be an Italian national. Eventually, my children will be indistinguishable, my grandchildren will be indistinguishable from regular Italians. They will practice the Jewish religion, um, and Italy gives you freedom of religion. Um, and that's it. But they will be Italians by nationality. They will pay Italian taxes. They will wave the Italian flag. They will fly Alitalia. They will, uh, you know, imbibe in Italian culture. And that's all fine. But no matter where I go, no matter what country I live in, no matter how many generations or centuries go by, Israel claims that it is my country and its prime minister is my prime minister. Everybody in the world ought to be against this ideology. Once this ideology is opposed by everybody, once everybody laughs, I'm not asking anybody to be angry at it, laugh at it. Laugh at Israel's claim to be the state of the Jews. 
1948, a bunch of guys uh, came to uh, Palestine, declared a state. How did that become my country? How did that become my father's country? How? They claim to speak in the name of the Jews. That's like me getting up and say, I'm Jesus, and I'm speaking in the name of all the Christians. That's crazy. It was literally, who are they to speak in my name? People should laugh when they claim, well, there's only one Jewish state. You, I'm sure you've heard this the last X amount of, the last uh, two months, so many times. You are not, the way you claim to be a Jewish state, there is not a single Muslim state, not a single Arab state like that. Israel's nationalism is odd, it's bizarre, it's overreaching, and it's different and uh, that, that more dangerous to both its citizens and other people around the world, such as myself, than any other nationalism that exists in the world today. This is the Achilles heel, the weak link in Zionism. And this is what needs to be attacked. And I'll tell you, when you have these organizations, like, you, you remember Jane Fonda? Oh, yes. Okay. So I want to show you how deep the Zionist propaganda is, okay? Jane Fonda was an anti-war activist, a celebrity here in the United States. One day, she did a very controversial thing. She went to North Vietnam, which was our enemy. We in South Vietnam were fighting against North. And she posed next to a, she did a photo op next to a anti-aircraft tank, which kills American uh, soldiers, the airmen. Um, and that was a, it was very controversial and it, pardon the pun, tanked her career for a while. Um, but the idea, it was very, very uh, advantageous to the North Vietnamese because they were able to showcase her and say, look, even in America, even an American is on our side, right? In ancient days, uh, armies used to put the uh, traitors or foreigners from their enemies' countries in the front lines in order to demoralize their enemies and say, even some of you guys are fighting for us, right? That's normal. I understand that. And I understand that when uh, an American goes to North Vietnam, the North Vietnamese showcase it. Now, here's the question. Uh, there are Jewish organizations, uh, Jewish Voice for Peace and various organizations like that and various Jews that as Jews, and that's the key words here, as Jews, go and uh, protest on this and, and advocate for the Palestinian cause. Now, I understand if somebody believes that the Palestinian cause is just, I understand that perfectly. And as an American, as a human being, uh, they want to uh, um, advocate for it. I got that. But listen to what happens when somebody does it as a Jew. I mean, as a Christian, nobody would do it because why would that be significant? As a black person, nobody would do it because why would that be significant? As a Jew, it is significant because the Palestinians then showcase Jews and say, here's our Jane Fonda. Even Jews are on our side, right? But June, here's the, here's, here's what's going, here's the problem with that. June, the fight is not between Israel, between the Palestinians and the Jews. It's between the Palestinians and Israel. If an American Jew or an Italian Jew as a Jew decides to advocate for the Palestinian side and, and the Palestinians and everybody in the world considers that significant because, look, even Jews are there, that presupposes, that communicates to everybody that the conflict is between Jews and Palestinians. 
Jane Fonda was an American. The war was between America and North Vietnam. If an American Jew or an Italian Jew becomes a Jane Fonda, well, the war is not between Palestinian, Palestinians and Italy or Palestinians and uh, America. Well, America perhaps could say it is the war against, but it's not, against, it's not between Palestinians and Jews. The idea that this is a war between Palestinians and Jews, that supports Zionism. You see, the more we, more we separate the Jews from Israel, the more clarity we get and the easier it is to come to peace because then Israel's not a Jewish state. Israel's only a Jewish state by smoke and mirrors because people think it is. If everybody would laugh at their claim that it's the Jewish state, guess what? It was like, it would be like, I don't know what, uh, Americans believed in manifest destiny or every a lot of countries believe that they have some kind of ideology, uh, but that everybody laughs at. Everybody would laugh at it and they would say, no, you have nothing to do with the Jews. You are Israelis. Uh, you need to become the state of your citizens. Italy is to the Italians, what France is to the French, what Israel is to the Israelis, not the Jews. But when, if you look at Jews from other countries as the Jane Fondas, then in the same breath that you're advocating for the Palestinians, you're advocating against their narrative. Because their narrative is that th this is not a war against the Jews, this is a war against Israel. That's how deep Israeli propaganda goes. And that is the key over here. The key, again, if somebody as an American, as an Italian, as a human being, wants to advocate for the Palestinian cause, I got it, I understand that. That, you know, there, there are advocates uh, for all sorts of uh, human rights causes. No problem, I got that. But if they're, as a Jew, and they're so showcased, if a Jew, who are the Jane Fondas of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Israelis. Get an IVP. Get Israeli boys for peace. Get Israelis over there. Showcase them. Say, even this Israeli agrees with us. You know, then you have your Jane Fonda. But if you're making Jews your Jane Fonda, you're promoting Zionism. You're literally promoting the idea that this is Jews all over the world against Palestinians. You will never, you will never come to a, uh, come to peace if that's the war. If the war is Jews against Palestinians, then it's not a question of Israel, two state, one state, it's Palestinians against the Jews. Who's going to win that war? You see, so the Israeli propaganda, which ties Israel to Jews, is so strong in people's minds. Yeah, okay, June, you're right. Anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. You're called an anti-Semite. But at the same time that we are screaming, rightfully so, that anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism, there are Jews, these same Jews, are saying, look, I'm a Jew, even though I'm Jewish. Even though I'm Jewish, I'm advocating for the Palestinians. That doesn't make any sense. If the, if, if, Israel is synonymous with Jews. If Zionism is synonymous with Jews, then anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. It's just that anti-Semitism isn't a bad thing anymore. Because being a Jew is a political movement. You're allowed to be against a political movement. What you can't be against, what's wrong, what's racist, is if you're against somebody's immutable characteristics. If I'm against somebody because he's black, because he's white, because he's a man, because he's a woman, because of his national origin, 
Uh, that's racism in various forms. It's hate. Although the masses of Israelis, if they were to rise up against their government, right now we're seeing the families of the kidnapped victims and those murdered gathering and protesting. They've met many times with the government, sometimes quite angrily. At the same time, this goes back to not just this being about Jews versus Palestinians per se, it's the fact that it's posited in the first place at all as Jews versus Palestinians rather than an older question of how Britain was somehow handed this piece of land to dole out to people and created the mess in the first place. In many respects, it's sort of like that uh, cartoon for adults where they, they sing Blame Canada, we could say blame Britain. There's a lot of, of guilt to go around in the way that colonies throughout the Mideast and Africa were chopped up, handed to very various countries, and they ran them. And sometimes they ran them into death, such as what happened during, you know, in the Congo and Belgians ran over that. Um, the production of tires, this coincided with the invention of the motor car, the need for rubber tires, and tens and tens, hundreds of thousands of Congolese were murdered and had their arms amputated because they were resisting being slave labor for the Belgians. Yet, we have not been given the same history. American universities will teach a lot of post-colonial courses or colonial courses on the subject of what France and Britain and so forth did, uh, but somehow they skip over Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza. So, it's fascinating because in your book, you have an appendix that you did devote one part of it to Moishel, Herzl's essay on this, or oh, it's Mauschel. Wait, hold on, I gotta get, yes, there's no umlaut, it's Mauschel. So could you talk about the importance of Mauschel? Because this very much ties in to the misunderstandings as to how Zionism is very anti-Semitic, actually. Very. Very. The idea, Zionism, as I mentioned, was founded uh, primarily uh, with a the goal to change the Jews from disgusting, loathsome, immoral, ugly people, such as myself, to people who everybody would love, like uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, right? Now, it didn't work out too well for them. But, uh, Theodore Herzl wrote an essay. It was called Mauschel. Mauschel is an anti-Semitic... Uh, word for Jews, also kind of like kike, and basically he says that Jews who are not Zionists are hor horrible people, they are not even the same race as Jews, we want to be rid of them, they are a, some, they're, they're like a muta they're like mutated uh, type of Jew, and uh, he ends this, and they, what did he say, oh yeah, remember I mentioned about how Jews were uh, busy with uh, studying uh, Torah and they weren't involved with art or architecture or things. So he has a line over there. He says uh, that Jews uh, Jews uh, appreciate art. Mauschel sells art, you know, the, with the anti-Semitic money trope. Uh, and he ends it off by saying that, look, we, we have Zionism over here and finally we have a movement that actually is good for us and now you're against it? With the one movement that's going to straighten us out and fix us and, and improve us, we have one chance uh, to be normal people, and even that you're against? Well, let me tell you something. 
you know, there was a story of William Tell. I don't know if your listeners are all familiar with it. He was a uh, an archer who, a, a very skilled archer who had a fight with an overlord and the overlord uh, captured him and forced him to shoot a apple off his son's head. Um, he, he succeeded, but he had two arrows in his quiver and the overlord asked him, why do you have two arrows if I only allowed you one shot? And he said, if the first shot would miss... Uh, the second shot would be aimed for your chest. I would kill you. So Herzl says, he's, he ends his essay by saying, there are two arrows in the quiver of Zionists. The first is for Zionism, and if that doesn't work, the second is aimed for Mauschel's chest. We're going to kill all the anti-Zionist Jews. That's what we're going to do. That, that's basically what, what, the way his, his essay ends now. this is her, Zionism is very anti-Semitic. The problem is the pro, that Jews have been so indoctrinated and the world has been so indoctrinated and been made to feel guilty. And a lot of them should feel guilty, but the guilt feelings should not be exploited this way uh, about the Holocaust that, okay, you know what? Let the Jews have Israel. Without that, Hitler's coming back tomorrow. Well, Hitler's not coming back tomorrow so fast, but even if he is, um, that doesn't justify that doesn't justify everything in the world. And second of all, Israel's certainly not a safe place. It's the most dangerous place for Jews. But those images, those images of you know, like before and after, the, the black and white images of Jews in a concentration camp starving to death, where you see their ribs and their hip bones and their elbow bones in the concentration camp pajamas and those caps, the, the horrific heartbreaking pictures in black and white right next to the pictures of an IDF soldier in his uniform, smiling guy the same age, and he's smiling at the concentration camp guy as if to say, I got your back, or I redeemed you. Uh, hit, um, Herzl himself said that nationalism, Zionism is never going to be, it should not be based on an intellectual basis. Uh, rather, he said, the thing that people die and live for are flags. Um, uh, what was his words? Intangibles, uh, imponderables that, that, that fly in the air. Uh, green, uh, red and gold confetti. Uh, give a person a flag. They'll kill for it. They'll die for it. Th things like this, approximately. This is what Herzl said, and it's all emotional-based. It doesn't make sense. What we need to do is to show, yes, historical inaccuracies in the Zionist narrative is important. I think it's also important to show the illogic, the inconsistencies, the contradictions, the, the patheticness, how pathetic it is, how, how comical Zionism is as a serious ideology, and this claim to be the state of the Jews around that everything else is based. That's why they must have a Jewish majority. That's why they must make sure the Palestinians who are under occupation don't have a right to vote. That's why they must have the territories because uh, the Jewish state, that's part of greater Israel, um, those who believe that that's a thing. And the settlers do. There are so many ideologies that are mixed in with each other what I think and I've found most successful from with the Zionists that I've dealt with, the most unassailable 
uh, arguments to put forth are these ideas that Zionism itself is contradictory. And it collapses under the weight of its own contradictions. The idea that Israel represents the Jews, that's the main, that's the fatal flaw. It doesn't. How can anybody disagree with that? How can anybody disagree? How can anybody agree with the idea that Jews in America, in England, in Italy, that Israel is their state? It's anti-American, anti-British, anti-Italian, anti-Semitic. How in the world? Nobody can disagree with that. We know when they say so many Jews are Zionists, they support Israel, really. I would, you want, you want to see that change? Just ask Jews. You know, if you ask them, okay, do you support Israel as a place that you could run in case of a Holocaust? Why shouldn't they say yes? Why not? Do you, do you think Israel has a right to exist? Sure, why not? Uh, everything has, the truth is no countries have a right to exist, but why not? Has a right to exist. But go ask Jews. Is Israel your country or is America your country? Is Netanyahu your prime minister or is Biden your president? Then see how many Jews say they're Zionists because that is the core of Zionism. It's not me saying this. This is Netanyahu saying this. It's not me saying this. It's Avigdor Lieberman saying this on Israel's website. They have a government website like we have .gov. They also have a thing like that. The definition of a Jewish state, according to Israel, its own prime minister, its own government is... What Italy is to the Italians, Israel is to the Jews. That, go ask Jews how many people agree with that, and you will see that the majority of Jews, religious and non-religious, are anti-Zionists. But they just don't realize the heart of Zionism. And around that, everything else is built.